Blog Talk Radio.
So, like always, uh, we encourage you to come and join us every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. And what we're going to do right now, as relates to this new year, we're going to ask our panelists first and foremost to introduce themselves. And we're going to talk a little bit about New Year's, a little bit about 2019. And then we're going to have various segments, which is what's going on in your world and the community, followed by the same thing as we deal with part two planning and controlling by force. This is Africa on the move, so right now we can get started with our party. And the way we do this is we will introduce our political panelists and analysts for the day. We will introduce them to you. So right now we'll start off with Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, Happy New Year 2020, and welcome to Africa on the move. Hey, Brother, <coughs> Brother Africa, thanks for having me, and uh, Happy New Year to you and the rest of the panelists. Uh, my name is Haki Kamathurin Shoki, currently with African Awareness. Of course, you know, Brother Africa, my thing is all about institutions. And the reason why institutions are so important, when you look at the kind of cons that are being perpetrated by the corporate uh, elite, uh, it begs the question, uh, what use do they have for humanity? You know, uh, recently I read an article by former Labor Secretary Robert Wright. Okay. Now, Robert Wright is a former uh, Labor Secretary under Bill Clinton. He talked about a billionaire hedge fund manager named Paul Singer. Singer owns the, the excuse me, the Elliott Management uh, Corporation, which is a hedge fund that makes tons of money by buying up companies and selling off their assets, including worker pensions. Now, Elliott Management, the firm, latest scheme is to buy up AT&T, a $270 billion company, eliminate most of its 257 uh, workforce. This will be achieved by outsourcing jobs or moving those jobs abroad, closing retail stores, and selling the company's assets, which includes those pensions. In the process, Elliott Management can acquire over $10 billion in revenue. This $10 billion will be used to purchase stocks. With a $10 billion investment in stock, that stock value would rise exponentially, making executives extremely wealthy. Now, when this strategy is utilized by other hedge funds, private equity firms, big corporations, the net effect is increased unemployment, lower wages, social anxiety, and rising inequality. Needless to say, social anxiety leads to more antisocial behavior. Now, distrust in corporations and in government and seeking alternatives to current forms of government. Now, pursuant to alternatives, as capitalism decline, could well lead us to the legitimization of authoritarian regimes that believe the way of yesteryear are the best suited for today's problems. With the selection of the orange minutes, one wonders why many on the right continue to embrace his policy, even though his policies benefit the ruling class at the expense of the economy and the social political institutions. Like Hitler, too many are content to believe more control equals the possibility for systemic change that benefits the citizenry. Historical reality is quite different in that regard. Now, authoritarian leaders are motivated by controlling power, not altruism or the concerns or the needs of the, the overwhelming number of people. Control of power can best be cons- consummated by three ways. One, divide and conquer. So we often talk about racism in the society, or we talk about this class conflict that exists in society, where one thing is very, very clear is the rich pitted against everyone else. The rich, rich is perceived as favorable, where everybody else is perceived as a drag on the economy. Secondly, the support of the corporate agenda. So we talk about tax breaks. Even though these tax breaks are given to these corporations and they pay no taxes, they do nothing in terms of revitalizing the economy. In fact, they're dragging on the economy. They undermine the economy. But despite that, despite that fact, uh, these tax breaks to these, these uh, corporations persist. And thirdly, the brutalization of dissent. Of 
So often we talk about police brutality, we don't understand that police brutality is a necessary part of the system, given the fact that hopelessness and despair that's uh, uh, impacting the, commun- the communities are increasing leaps and bounds. And so therefore, given that reality, they understand at some point it becomes a, a, a barrier in terms of the longevity of the system. So therefore, any type of dissent must be, must be dealt with in a very violent and brutal kind of way. Now, given this backdrop, is social, I would ask, is social racial justice feasible? Can equality be addressed? Probably not. Now, therefore, we need institutions in order to determine which way forward. Now, increasing pressure doesn't necessarily mean that hopelessness has to prevail. It simply means more organization is needed. We must have the institutions to clarify exactly where we need to go uh, in, in the time of the crisis. Because clearly, you know, capitalism is in crisis. And as I alluded to, one of the things when we talk about it being in crisis, everyone becomes an ex- existential threat uh, to the system. And so, therefore, when we talk about the kind of brutality, the kind of injustice inflicted upon the people, that's only going to proliferate. It's not going to decrease. So we need institutions, and I encourage people to get about the business of building institutions. Thank you, Brother Haki. Father Brother Haki, we'd like to say Happy New Year's to Brother Anthony and bring me in. Brother Anthony, Happy New Year's and... Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Happy New Year to you and yours as well. And revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total Liberation and Unification of Africa Under Scientific Socialism Father Brother Anthony We'd like to say Happy New Year to Brother Moses And Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon Thank you, thank you, thank you And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice Happy New Year's My name is Robert Andrew Moses And I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism From the moment I was introduced to Marxism doing a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Moses. Brother Moses, we are honored to have you. And Father Brother Moses, we'd like to help you. Happy New Year's 2020, and welcome, Brother Maurice, to Africa on the Move. Happy New Year's, and welcome, Brother Maurice. Happy New Year's. Happy Revolutionary New Year's. Um, my name is Brother Maurice, member of the Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party, and I'm just happy to be on, back on the uh, show tonight. I know it's been been a while since I've been missing, missing in action, but I'm back. Um, at the beginning of this revolutionary new year, and I and I, my 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 goal is to remain uh, in trying to catch these shows every Sunday. Thank you for having me, man. Thank you. I always honored to have you, brother Maurice. All right, panelists and our listening audience, let's get started with this party. As we first just ask our panelists and today a little something about how would they how would they assess their um, year 2019 and what kind of plans, ideas, and aspirations they would like to achieve for the year 2020? Start off with you, Brother Haki. How would you assess the year 2019? And are there any particular goals or objectives you'd like to achieve for the year 2020? 
Oh, tough question, Brother Africa. Uh, clearly, uh, 2019, like the previous uh, uh, decade, it's been hard fought. Um, the struggle goes on. I mean, the reality is that we talk about a system that is, that is fundamentally uh, indifferent to the plight of human suffering. And so, therefore, we realistically can't expect them to actually turn around and, and, and to critique the system and to proclaim that, in fact, the kind of things that are going on are fundamentally wrong and uh, in opposition you know, to humanity. That's something that's going to happen. So given that reality, the struggle continues. So I suspect in 2020 as well, you know, we'll continue this process in terms of trying to get people to understand the necessity in terms of building institutions, but more importantly, to understand why those institutions have to be built. It's one thing to understand, you know, social phenomenon, but it's another thing to internalize it. So the struggle is to get people to internalize these, 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 these values. And so therefore, when they build these institutions, they're heartfelt. And so people actually want to see these institutions through. Because we have to create something for the, for the future generations. Because if we don't do it, my biggest concern is that given the level of propaganda that exists in the society and the ability to deceive people uh, and the ability to control education, a particular higher education, I'm concerned that a lot of people can be ill-suited in terms of making the kind of necessary critique that is needed in terms of understanding how the system operates and why it's, dev- why it's devastating to so many people, you know, both in America and throughout the world. So the struggle continues, Brother Africa. So I look forward to continuing the struggle and hoping that, you know, make some kind of impact and, and, and can get people to start thinking about, you know, the kind of things that go into society and why they go into society and the, um, the, the adverse impact it's having on society. So the struggle continues. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, would you like to give some kind of assessment of your past year, 2019? And if you may have any future goals, objectives, or ideas that you'd like to um, achieve for the year 2020. Okay, uh, certainly. Uh, 2019 marks the close of a decade, which has seen uh, numerous setbacks for Africa and African people worldwide. Uh, it has seen the intensification of neocolonialism throughout the world, uh, even though uh, there are uh, more highly educated Africans in positions of um, elected leadership than ever before. However, in spite of that, in spite of the intensification of neocolonialism, the level of uh, people's resistance throughout the world is also rising. And my hope for 2020 is that we see an intensification of our people's struggle to organize in order to defeat imperialism in all of its manifestations. Thank you, Brother Hefty. And we now go to Brother Moses, same question. How would you assess this past year, 2019, and if you have any goal, aspirations, or objectives that you would like to achieve or strive for for the year 2020? Well, I'll tell you my dream. My dream is to dance in Jerusalem like David danced when they fall this Israeli war machine falls. Um but that's, you know, easier said than done. Um, this year has been, a, you know, a conscious-raising year. At least people are more aware of, of this Trump 
and what he's all about. And there is a there is a, a, a developing consciousness. Um, it, I don't know uh, what the future is going to bring, but but it is I'm optimistic. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses and Brother. Brother Maurice, what is your assessment of this past year, 2019? And do you have any future aspiration goals for 2020 that you'd like to share, share with the people today? Sure, sure. Um, 2019, uh, you know, like every year and like this year, going forward was a year of struggle, like some of our present um, commentators just stated. It was a year of struggle. But going forward in, in 2020, we need to we need to develop more of our people and Africans. They need we need to, we need more um, revolutionary political um, uh, development among our Africans uh, here in the United States, all over the world. But specifically specifically in Richmond, Virginia, um, I, I I would like to see more political uh, organizing in our Kwanzaa pro, uh, programs going forward. Um, the cultural component is good and is needed. Not only good is is needed. But I believe we at a point in time now, especially in 2020, that we need to become more pan-Africanist revolutionary as a crewman's and ideology um, inspired uh, on the teachings of Kwame Nkrumah, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, first president of Ghana. We have to get to the point of developing a united African socialist uh, system, a state. Um, that's where we at right now in 2020. I'd like to thank your panel analysts for your reflection on 2019 and looking forward to the year 2020. Again, Happy New Year to all our supporters and listening audience. If you'd like to share your views and comments and your reflection for last year and what you plan on doing this year, please email or write us. Let us know by contacting AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Right now, we're going to make our transition to what's going on in your world and the community. Before we do that, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we will discuss what's going on in your world and the community, and we invite you to call in and share that aspect with us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. This is Africa on the Move.
um, when it comes to, you know, their interactions with the community. So I think this kind of story, you know, should raise real red flags for people who are concerned about uh, justice in the society. Mm. We'll think about that. We'll come back to that. So points that you raised, Brother Haki. Yeah, listen to all your something to think about. That's also now go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Okay. Um, last week, uh, the Orange Menace ordered the assassination of an Iranian, uh, of a high-level Iranian military official who was very popular in Iran. And uh, he and um, it and it and it's causing an escalation of tensions between the U.S. and Iran, and therefore indirectly embroiling uh, the U.S. in another war, which Africans and other oppressed people will end up bearing the brunt of. And. Uh, and uh, also, it, it generates more money for the uh, m- uh, multinational corporations that benefit and profit off of uh, these wars by selling weapons of mass destruction in which to fight them. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, um, Brother Anthony sort of stole my thunder. Um, I think that was the big thing this this week. Uh, um, Trump, you know, with no regard whatsoever for for the possibilities of war and what that means. I don't think he has any. He's never been a soldier or anything, and he's gonna. He's not going on the front lines, and and so he has no no real consciousness about war uh, and how to stay out of it, uh, evidently. And so that was the big thing this week. Uh, I think, you know, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world and the community? Um, I, I specifically focus on more in the, in the community, more um, I, uh, in, in, in Virginia and United States. Uh, so basically, um, in the Richmond Times Dispatch today, there was an article about um, remembering or um, celebrating historically black high schools in Norfolk, Virginia, Booker T. Washington High School, and also um, it was they spoke about the George Washington Carver High School out of Chesterfield County. And real brief, I'm gonna read two points that stuck out to me in the article. Just real brief. Not to be long with it. All right, it's the sister. Um, she's 76 years old. She was a student of Booker T. Washington in the 1960s, and she stated, she, "It was uh, okay." She stated that the lunches were joyful. She had all sad because the cafeteria was too small. The 40-minute forever hike to school was worth it for a world-class education. The persistent teachers who persuaded her to attend college despite herself doubt. That, uh, d- uh, doubt. Sorry about that. That's the first quote. Second part of the article, um, in the last part that I would I will read from, 
She said the t- uh well this was another student from Carver, George Washington Carver High School. And this student stated, or elder stated, the teachers of Carver never allow us to focus on being segregated and not necessarily having things other schools had, white schools. Um, this is Baskerville. She's 76 years old. She stated that their sole focus, the teacher's sole focus was on moving forward, giving the students skills, knowledge, and understanding that would move them forward in society. They had a way of showing us how to be the best that they can be. The two reasons that I wrote, read these points in this article, of this article, and the reason that this article stuck out to me because these two students, um, elders now, they understood and understand the seriousness and and the realness of having and, and controlling African institutions. Um, luckily, as she stated in the article, that book, uh, Booker T. Washington High School is still around and, and it still has 80% predominantly black people. But back in the day, speaking with elders uh, and Africans who was products of segregated, uh, not segregated schools, all black schools, liberated schools, which some elders called them, they received more of an education, more knowledge about their history and about, about their culture, about their people, more hunger and motivation to fight for their people. And that's and working in the school today, that's where Africans, that's where our mind should be in development, uh, should be towards building up our own institutions and building up our own communities worldwide, especially here in, in the depths, right in the belly of capitalism. So um, that, that's what's going on in the world that uh today um, fresh on my on my on my mind. Hmm, Panelists, let's start out with some of the points or issues Brother Marie just raised. And actually I'll take a ride down memory lane. When you were coming up and looking at how education was viewed, how it was practiced, um, how, you know, there were certain expectations of you. Uh, to seeing the school and the attitudes of the teachers and, and even this whole question of segregation versus integration. The two points that the two students made, one went to Carver High School and one went to Booker T, how do those points, uh, um, how, how, how are those points today lost in terms of how uh, this question of education has been viewed today when it comes to uh, the implementation of educating the youth today, particularly the African youth, when it comes to how even those in responsible positions, their philosophy today, as we look at how education is being applied to African communities and people in relationship to the objective conditions that we now find ourselves. Give me your critique around that issue, Brother Haki. Because is it true, yeah. do, you think, do you think, is it true the quality of education? Uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was a lot more higher, a lot more qualitatively uh, um, um, displayed during that time than what we get today. Do you also think the teachers back then had a different focus on how education should be viewed and used as it relates to the responsibility of us as a community and the people? Give me your reflection on, on that dynamic that dynamic in the narrative, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, you know, the whole impetus behind integration was to get the necessary resources that African schools will need in terms of, uh, you know, exposing the children to. That was the whole impetus. But, of course, that didn't happen. Those things that we need in terms of the most recent technology, that never happened. Uh, 
uh, what we got was rhetoric. We never we never received the kind of uh, equipment, um, the kind of uh, up to date kind of uh, you know access to books, you know that we thought integration would bring. So having said that, I think it's important we understand historically when we look at education, we have to understand that education is simply instilling in an individual or child a Kindu spirit, and that's all education is. In the sense that African teachers back in the day, way back in the day, you know, during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, during, the time, during that time when schools were quote-unquote segregated, uh, they were empowered to teach their kids, teach the children, you know, realistically what was going on, you know, in society and, and, and to sort of impress upon them the importance in terms of academic excellence. And so, therefore, that can do that sense of can do is, is I think, what had the had the biggest impact on 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 the youth at that particular African youth at that particular time, because the whole thing, even though if you didn't have the latest technology or the latest books in terms of you know uh, for, for in terms of academia, the the whole the, the 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 fundamental premise was established in which you know the expectations for that for children was very very high, and so therefore, if you could take the information that you were privy to. Could always be applied to other kinds of information, and so in that sense, it really didn't matter that you didn't have access to the most current technology, the current, most recent books, uh, because the thing once you did have access to those things, the the, the kind of foundation was established in which you know academic excellence was a, was a, was a, was a modus operandi in terms of you know how students were taught to believe and to think, and also keep in mind, brother Africa, one of the things we had to keep in mind too when we talk about the education system. Keep in mind that it was community also that we enforced the importance in terms of educational excellence. It wasn't just your parents who talked about the importance of education and learning. It was also a whole community sort of reinforced that. So you look at today, it's a totally different reality. Um, these young kids don't get that kind of reinforcement from, from, the, from their parents. It's a different generation. Uh, as we become more indoctrinated in terms of this individualism, in terms of this American way of doing things, we see a less of a need in terms of working together as opposed to, you know, doing things individually. And as long as we do things individually, we don't feel accountable for one another. So I think essentially that's what's happening in terms of the current generation. And so therefore, as a consequence, those, those young people don't encourage their children to do well academically. I mean, not to say that across the board, but to say that as a community, you simply don't have that kind of vitality that exists at this, at, at this point. So we have to get back to that in terms of, you know, in terms of the expectation about children. And the reality is that, you know, in terms of having access to the latest uh, books and latest technology, well, certainly the latest books might be problematic simply because they're very, very expensive. And one of the reasons when we talk about the decline of capitalism, books are increasingly becoming more and more expensive. The idea, as far as the ruling class is concerned, is to limit the opportunity of poor, the poor kids to have access to those books. And so, therefore, those books become very, very expensive, which means they become very difficult to obtain a lot of these schools, particularly schools that house, you know, African students. So we understand that. But in terms of technology, it's a simple question in terms of proving one's resources in terms of getting technologies in the school to make sure the kids have access to that technology. So I think there is a fundamental difference, a philosophical difference in terms of what happened, you know, you know, back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago versus what's happening now. But I think the quality of education, I think, was better because the, the overall essence was, you know, the expectations are that, you know, that you're going to do well, you know, academically, that we expect you to do well academically, and we know you're going to do well academically. So there are different expectations. So the quality of the, the, quality of the education was better because you left that feeling that you can do, you, you know, you can achieve. And so now it's a totally different ball game in which a lot of situations where, you know, particularly African children, you know, are, 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 are castigated, you know, put down, belittled, 
you know, for the most simplistic of things. I mean, even, you know, childlike behaviors, like in terms of, you know, hugging one another, you know, uh, could, could very well lend a little, little African child, you know, um, in, in, in real trouble. So clearly it's a different different paradigm in terms of, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the impetus behind education now. So um I'd agree that I think that the, the whole question in terms of controlling res- your your institutions in in your community is very, very important. But first and foremost, in order to control those institutions in your community, you first and foremost have to understand have a a, a, a theoretical understanding of why such a thing is possible. Right now we're caught up in this whole thing about Integration, and so I mean, if you can achieve integration, that's fine. But integration is not the cure-all in terms of, or cure-all, or be-all in terms of, you know, the 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 the, the aspirations of African children. You have to have a solid foundation in which to build upon. If the current school system doesn't create that foundation, it really doesn't matter, you know, what they're exposed to. The bottom line is that that foundation wasn't created. So therefore, we 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 need educational control the educational system to ensure that our kids get that foundation. Without that foundation become very problematic in terms of, you know, uh, any, any real success going into the future. Brother Anthony, your take on this phenomenon? Yes. Uh, in the days when uh, when schools were openly segregated uh, and before the, uh, the disintegration of African communities as a result of migrations, uh, northward and westward, there was a greater sense of community in uh, uh, among Africans, and uh, and the teachers, even though they had inferior resources to work with, cared uh, to a certain degree about uh, about how how the students performed, and and were concerned because they came. From the same community that, that that their students came from, so I think there was a certain empathy and concern uh, 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 about students that's lacking uh, in, in in the public school system throughout the U.S. today. And uh, I concur with the points that Hakeem made earlier. And brother Moses, your response to this phenomenon. Of course, uh, the situation before integration was was uh, uh, I guess it led to more uh, community consciousness among um, the community because you know we had each other to rely on and 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 we taught each other and and that was great. Uh, I do think that that. Integration brings about a social, a social uh, education that cannot be achieved by segregation. I think you know definitely what what uh, Haki's points are well taken. Uh, the the purpose was to get better equipment and and facilities. The separate but equal was not working, and uh, and so that's that with that in mind. Uh, we should, we should uh, support public schools and and uh, try to get community-based schools. Thank you. Brother Maurice, when you read the article, when you, drew those, when you raised those two particular points that you highlighted, 
What is about those two points that you'd like to share with our listeners audience or why you thought that was so significant and how do you apply it to um, today's reality when you're talking about how education are being viewed and used as it relates to the interests of African people here and abroad? Okay. Um, um, something that I want to state from the article uh, that that was listed that I didn't state earlier too. Another point made by um, the student who went to uh, George Washington Carver High School. She said, "If you don't know, I'm sorry." She said, "If you don't know from from hence you come, or if you don't know where you come from, then how you know where you going? Where you going?" And but she said, "Then how are you going to know? Yeah, where are you going?" So basically, um, to answer your question, those those are points. This article, this, this article caught my attention because working in the school system, the school system, working in um, in the school on the south side, I'm not gonna say, <laughs> I mean I don't mind saying the name, I don't care. Oak Grove Bellmead Elementary School, um, it's a it, it's a jungle. Uh, I, I don't mean to uh, say it like that um, with the racial background of that term when you're speaking about Africans, but it, it, it's a madhouse, man, and 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 we're dealing with trauma in a community and the trauma comes from like we all just stated not having the cultural programs um my my background is a youth but i want to go further than just uh trying to better richmond public schools or public schools in general i want to create a i want to i want to organize our youth into a pioneer young pioneers um to the situation that Nkrumah did and Ghana, which was very powerful, uh, the young Ghana Young Pioneers, and basically it was a, a a youth camp, a youth organization, youth program initiative that had students disciplined, trained, um, work. I mean, come on, physical education, political education. That's what we need. Uh, I think Brother Haki stated, but I think he stated this now. Um, we have to be political educated in order to have that foundation to create um, and run our own institutions. Like like you said, we was run, We want better books. And the books, you know, we want better books. And the books that we wanted was not produced by Africans anyhow. The books the books we wanted had European um, propaganda in these books. And today, in 2020, we order books from, we order used books. We go to, what the book downtown in um, Currytown? Chop suey? Come on, man. We go down to used bookstores to get used books that have better education information, political information, cultural information, than, or historical information than those books that we was fighting for back then. You know, we, you know, we, we want some updated. And speaking about technology, all the technology, people are happy about technology. It's faster. It's um. Uh, it gets gets to you your destination quicker by using a GPS system, by using Google to look for stuff up. But it's not all of that good. Like in one of the articles we want to highlight tonight that I read about the 5G, this uh what is it the fifth generation of of of, of cell phones or or, or mm-hmm. uh, Wi-Fi whatever whatever the hell it is we want to call it right. But it's it's nothing but if it, if it's created by the capitalists. Imperialist is no good for us, man. It's it, it's going to lead to our destruction. We have right now we are having our meeting on spy spy devices 
from from what from what I know, uh, I know I am <laughs> a cell phone, smartphone, Android. It, it is spy devices. Um, technology, and I, and I conclude with this. I know I'm long with it, but and I and I know I got away from your answer, but I say this in relation to tie it in back to the show and back to the article when it, that's going to be highlighted tonight. Technology, all technology is utilized in the military first, first and foremost. And to tie it into Africa, the minerals that and all the minerals, the labor, um, the the land for their military bases and their military conferences in Africa, exploitation of Africans and African land period to have developed this stuff for our destruction and for their control and for their power. Um, they're 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 minerals. They use a drone to take out an Iran the leader in, in, in Iran. You know, they they use they used to use uh you know, uranium. They use uranium to blow up to blow up Nagasaki, Hiroshima, you know. But that that's what I would that's what I would conclude with, man. We we have to uh, like I stated earlier in the in the uh, in the uh introduction of, of myself, we have to become we have to go up to the other level from not only we gotta go past black power, black power we gotta Get back to black power and pan and go further to and develop to pan Africanism, uh, revolutionary pan pan Africanism. I, I may add or suggest because just looking at black visibility, or we have a first black this, a first black that, or we have a black quarterback in the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? That's not enough. That's not nothing compared to what we're dealing with, man. We need political action. Thank you, brother. Well, said, not only do we need political action, but we also need positive action, as the crew would say. But in terms of going to the point that Brother Anthony made, Brother Anthony, you talk about the importance of this recent um, assassination by this diplomat, by this minister, cabinet minister of Iran. You talk about you know, the use of killing by drone. One of the things I'd like to uh, raise with the panelists, I'd like to hear y'all, uh, feedback on this on, on this issue, and this is the issue of how do you have a so-called president in a in a so-called vulnerable position, a so-called in the process of maybe getting impeached, but he can arbitrarily on his own enter and make such a decision, of assassinating a foreign leader or a foreign diplomat that can maybe upset the whole balance of the world and create world wars. And there's no um, check and balance on him, given the fact that, you know, here he's dealing with a so-called impeachment, but he's still bold enough to make or give out such such an order. How do you explain that, that, that phenomenon of um, being that um, free, to freely make such a decision, under those kind of conditions. I don't think that could be done in no other country. Where here is a major party, there's an internal strike or trying to maybe just possibly displace him, but at the same time, he are making such important decisions that can not only affect, you know, the, 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 the interest and the well-being of what takes place inside the country, but the world. How are he able to get away with this thing, Brother Hackey? What's your knowledge of that? How can that be so? He can be there for in a, in, a, in a nutshell, imperialism. I mean, let's let's be let's be very very candid about what we're talking about. You know, 
Essentially, we understand that this is not a democracy. Uh, it's an oligarchy. And as such, people with money, corporations specifically, rule. So anything that can further the profitability of the welfare of the corporations is going to get done. And so, therefore, if bombing Iran, uh, assassinating Soleimani, assassinating that military leader, is good in the final analysis for business, then it's going to be done. Because clearly, when you, as you allege, as you alluded to, Brother Africa, one of the things is when you when you do something like that, is there are repercussions in terms of killing, you know, military leaders of other states, particularly when what you did was illegal. There's no question about it. I mean, that assassination of of um, Soleimani was illegal. It was criminal. There's no question about that under international law, national law, any kind of law. So clearly, you know, when you do that kind of thing, the repercussions are very, very real. Uh, but the fact is that he can do that. Uh, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of deep state that exists in American society, which people don't often talk about. So often we like to believe that, in fact, if this guy is the uh, president of the United States, you, you know, he he has a, uni, a, a unilateral authority in terms of actually carrying out warfare. Not really. If in fact, if his if his idea doesn't gel with the ruling elite, uh, specifically the deep state, uh, those individuals actually run American society. If what he says doesn't gel with their beliefs, then it won't happen. He can only do it to the extent that whatever he says he wants done gives, is legitimized by the deep state. And we have to understand that. And so we talk about democracy. We talk about all these people in the, in the CIA, the FBI, uh, National Defense Intelligence Agencies. And we talk about all these groups. These groups are autonomous. They, groups, they pretty much run things as they see fit. And so the reality is that even if the orange menace decided that he wasn't going to assassinate the, um, the, the, the uh, Iraqi uh, military leader, Iranian military leader, even if he decided he wasn't going to do that, uh, if they decided unilaterally that they're going to assassinate him, they would. And, of course, in doing that, then it's incumbent upon the orange menace to say that I made that decision because it makes him look all the more powerful. But the reality is he had no say-so in terms of the assassination of the uh, Iranian uh, military leader there in Iraq. So clearly, Brother Africa, so the reason why he can do it is simple. It's imperialism. To give you another example, and I conclude with this, Macron does the same thing. Macron out of France does the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, he's engaged in war in the cells of Africa. I mean, we're talking about war all the way from the western part of Africa, expand all the way to the eastern part of Africa. We talk about numerous countries that are a part of that coalition in which Macron is currently engaged in military uh, 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 conquest against. Now, he's upset the fact that he's, 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 he, him and the U.S. are doing it alone. He wants Germany to, to involve themselves in terms of this war, this war effort, you know, doing the Seychelles in Africa. Germany's position was that, no, 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 we got, uh, we got things we want to achieve. You know, we got a population that needs to be housed. We got a population that needs to be jobs. We have a population of the sick, need to be educated, and so therefore we can better spend our monies, you know, in a way which is most productive. Where as far as Macron is concerned, even though this war effort is devastating the economy, and given the fact that the fabulous job that the, the, the Yellow Vest, along with the unions, are doing in France in terms of taking a stand against imperialism, Macron persists. He continues to send troops over there to the Seychelles to be, to be killed, you know, uh, under some misguided notion that, in fact, that imperialism is going to last forever. So I say, all I say, all I have to say, Brother Africa, it all goes back there to imperialism. He does what he does simply because imperialism empowers him to do what he does. 
And Brother Anthony, what's your take on this analogy of how such a so-called vulnerable president in the state of maybe being impeached has such liberty and fail so freely to uh, carry out such an act? How is this possible from your analysis and input, Brother Anthony? It's possible because um, the checks and balances that were built into the U.S. Constitution to prevent uh, this sort of thing from happening, to prevent an individual from getting the U.S. embroiled into a war, uh, was uh, what, what, what was uh, was abrogated by Congress decades ago. That's how the U.S. got involved in the Vietnam War. It was uh, it, it was the president at that time. Dwight Eisenhower that uh, that 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 ordered troops to uh, you know to Vietnam in order to support French imperialism, and uh, since that time, uh, numerous presidents have arbitrarily uh, you know uh, chosen to um, you know uh, to to, uh, to to engage in attacks militarily. Because of the deep state that Brother Haki alluded to. And Congress long ago abrogated its authority to declare wars. You know, Brother Moses, and also like Brother Maurice, maybe I'd like to hear your um, assessment on this particular issue of who made the U.S. president the head policeman of the world to be able to run and dictate and and, 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 and do as please without consorting anyone else? Who gave him the uh, right and put him in position to do so? What's your take on that, Brother Moses and Maurice? Go ahead, Brother um, Moses. Yeah, well, you know, this U.S. imperialism uh, and the U.S. government has always thought they had manifest destiny and God's uh, ordain, or uh, they, they've always had this messianic uh, uh, position, and uh, they've been imperializing and subjugating the world to, to their interests since the beginning there. And with the Monroe Doctrine and all the other other things, uh, and so you know, obviously the 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 so-called deep state uh, was suggesting to Trump to take this guy out, like they suggested it to Bush, and they suggested it to Obama, you know, in the past, evidently. And so, you know, finally they found the right guy. Uh, 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 Trump and so, and Trump has no confidence whatsoever, and you know that's the bottom line. Uh, he's just a kind man trying to be a politician and uh, manipulate and play on the backward sentiments of the people and and carry out his capitalist interests. I'll leave it right there. Thank you, Brother Marbius. Your take on who made you as president, the international police of the world. Okay, um, even though Trump, he ordered a hit on his man when he was on vacation in a private club in Florida, Palm Beach, Florida, we can't, we can't, can't get, uh, you know, 
distracted. To piggyback off Brother Moses, like he said, Obama had an opportunity to take this strike, but Obama was busy. People, the Democrats, um, Virginia Senator Democrats, Mark Warner and Tim Kaine, try to say Trump acted too quick. Trump acted too quick. Come on, man. Stop playing around. They've been wanting to take out this man, but they were too busy taking out other people. Bush had his hand full, baby Bush, George Bush Jr., whatever you want to call him, the, the infidel. When he was in power, he had his hands full, taking taking out Saddam Hussein. He was trying to take out Hugo Chavez. He was trying to take out Fidel Castro. He had his hands full. Then when he got down to Obama being in power, Obama had his hands full in Libya, taking out Muammar Gaddafi. And taking money from not only taking money, see Africans and, and, and here on on America, we just focus on the struggles that affect Africans here. They said Obama a lot of money um, for HBCUs, historic, historically black college and university, decreased under Obama. Not only that, African drones basements, African Africom command posts, and uh, military bases, drone bases increased under uh, under Obama and Africa. And not to take the light off Trump. But I'm just saying, everybody want to. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, see, that's the thing. We not. We we dealing with a, <laughs> a system. We're not dealing with a person. Trump is a nasty bastard. Let me tell you something. He's nasty. Uh, I can't say what I want to say, but I think you get the idea and the sense where I'm coming from. For for these these are the, uh, the American imperialists, European imperialists, capitalist presidents, all presidents, includes including the black president. Barack Obama, all of these people are the biggest uh, hitmen, the biggest monsters, the biggest gangsters. They 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 know this stuff. They've been doing it since the enslavement of Africans, and since the and, and since our ancestors enslavement. Without without labor of our ancestors and being enslaved here in the United States of America, none of this stuff would be possible. Because the enslavement created the capitalism. It created that. It developed developed all of that sur- surplus. It developed um, uh, that surplus for Europeans and capitalists to create uh, study and research centers to strategic to learn how to use uh, strategic metals. And what the first thing they do with these strategic metals? Create weapons. We're dealing with a monsters, man. That's what we got to understand. Whether you're Democrat, whether you're Republican, you are still on the same body of imperialism. Brother Hackett, yeah, Brother Africa, Brother Africa. Let me let me just weigh in on something real quickly in terms of the question you raised in terms of what gives them the right, the U.S. the right to be the police of the world. In a nutshell, NATO, NATO was established by the United States, and we established for a reason. It was all about consolidating Western powers for the sole purpose of protecting imperialism, and that's what it was created for. And as such, originally the U.S. Pro- provided more money for the NATO establishment than any other country, and so therefore it gave it the right in terms of calling the shots. And so it became de facto the the the, the, uh, the, the, the cop or the, the police of the world. And that's what gives its power in terms of doing what it does. But what's happening is that increasingly more and more Western countries are becoming uh, under really economic difficulties. And so therefore, you know, their their ability to contribute, you know, in terms of the war effort, in terms of maintaining imperialism is waning because they can't take care of their populations and provide for their people at the same token and spend Exorbitant amount of money, you know, per G, as far as that GDP is concerned, uh, toward war and also be able to take care of his people, and so therefore it's 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 in real real trouble. And one of the reasons why the Orange Menace is talking about 
he want uh, you know countries around the world to contribute more to the NATO effort. Because what he's saying to them is that, listen, you know, we're willing to sacrifice, you know, um, uh, men and women, you know, here in America for the sake of imperialism. You can at least do the same. And what the nation is saying, listen, you know, our, our populations are a bit more uh, in, uh, conscientious in terms of this war effort. And they're more willing to call us out in terms of war effort. Whereas in the U.S., you've got a very sophisticated propaganda machine. And so, therefore, you got people supporting war. Who don't even realize what the uh, what the metrics are in terms of you know initiating the war. So clearly, you know what gives them the impetus to be president of uh, police of the world. It's simply NATO that gives them the power in terms of being you know, uh, policemen of the world. And so therefore, you know, uh, but I think it's a position nonetheless is in decline simply because countries around the world, Western countries around the world specifically, you know, can ill afford to continue you know, to pump up huge sums of money. Uh, toward the toward, toward imperialist efforts, you know, by the West, particularly led by the United States. And could I add? Could I add also that that also the people in the U.S., even as politically backward as the working class is in the U.S., are getting increasingly fed up. And uh, that's shown by the numerous demonstrations against uh, U.S. policy that took place this weekend. You know, um, uh, Brother uh, Haki, you sort of was going down the road that I was going to raise with the rest of the panelists around the whole issue. When one talk about capitalism in a, in a crisis, what does that really mean? Can you give, can you give our listen audience, everyday people, some concrete um, ideas of how that plays out as it relates to the ability or inability to deal with social and racial injustices? Real simple. Let's 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 talk about it in economic terms. I mean, that's the most difficult one because people don't tend to think about economics because we're taught that economics is too just too intricate, too complex for us to comprehend, and so therefore we tend to be turned off by economics. But let's talk a little bit about economics. Let's talk to start with disparity between the have and the have nots. One of the things in terms of capitalist system, if in fact capitalism system is to to thrive, one of the things it needs it needs money flowing through the system. Essentially, what happens, and this is systematic, but what is happening is that the ability in terms of money flowing through the system is being curtailed. Because what's happening is that you have a situation where people continually give, you know, the wealth and they give corporations tax breaks. Well, normally when you give people tax breaks, you do it with the, with the hopes that they will use that money to put it back into the economy, to expand the economy, to create job opportunities, uh, better salaries, and so forth for the people. That's not what's happening. What is happening is the wealthy take their money and they do what? They invest it. And then invest it, and most of the time they hide it. So what we're talking about, we talk about an economy that is essentially $27 trillion in debt, of which $24 trillion in, is in offshore accounts, which means that it can never be touched. And so, therefore, it has a unique um, uh, residual effect, a very negative impact in terms of the overall function of the economy. Because the function of the economy needs money. If it doesn't have money to flow through the system, then it decays. It falls. And so that's, when you, that's one of the crises that you're talking about. In addition to when you talk about in terms of giving large sums of money to the wealthy, one of the problems you, you have to understand is that, one, in particular corporations, one of the things that they do is that they take the you give, give them a large tax cut. They pay no, like for instance, let's say Walmart. They made last year they made two point two billion dollars in, uh, in in revenues, two point two billion dollars. What they took that two point two billion dollars, they didn't give high salaries, they didn't use it in terms of hiring more people. What they did was they borrowed back their own stock. 
there is a consequence of buying back their own stock. That stock rises in value. So therefore, therefore, they can sell that stock and make tons and tons and tons of money. And also, the people, the people, their stakeholders, or that well, the stockholders, sometimes the stakeholders, can also uh, get in on the party and make make lots and lots of money. But the bottom line, in terms of as far as being productive, as far as the economy is concerned, it does absolutely nothing for the economy, zero for the economy. So it means, so when we talk about crisis, and what means that when you talk about things like um, affordable housing. Quality education, health care, access to food, all those things become problematic for a system which in decline. So for the system, it creates a crisis because in elderly, what that means for the system is that what do we do with all these people that we can no longer feed, house, shelter, or educate? we got to do something with them. We can lock them up, sure, mass incarceration. We can beat them up, kill them up, police brutality. Uh, you know, we can stop them to death. We stress them out you know, uh, diabetes, heart disease, so forth and so on. But those things are all, all um, uh, 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 well, I guess the term I'm looking for is they're more a, a function of conscription. They they work, but they don't do the job as fast as the ruling class would like to see to happen. So ultimately, you know, as far as the ruling class is concerned, you got this ever number, increasing number of people who are hopeless, uh, who, who who don't have access to jobs, uh, uh, shelter, uh, education, um, affordable housing, and so forth and on. So the question is that, you know, that if we don't do something at a much quicker pace, then the system's longevity or stability is in real trouble. And so for them, they got to find some creative way in terms of getting rid of lots and lots of people at a faster pace. Well, the reality is that when you look at the history, there's no way they can do that, get rid of people at a faster pace. They can't. They simply can't which means that the pressure grows in terms of mass incarceration of their own citizens as a way of maintaining control. So as a consequence, we get the National Defense Authorization Act, which talks about the internment of many of its own citizenry simply because the system is in crisis, simply because it can't afford to provide the things that the citizenry need. So that's one example in terms of when we talk about the system is in crisis. Uh, politically, we can talk about, um, you know, I ain't going to go on and on, but we can, politically we can talk about crisis, or socially we can talk about the crisis. But I think economic crisis is, is an important one. That is the one that I try to get people to, 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 to confront. That is the one I want people to dig more deeply into, because once you understand the economics of it all, then you understand the conditions as they, as they currently con, uh, exist and why they exist. So I think that's just one example in terms of um, what I mean by, by crisis. I'm going to all the panelists, analysts, y'all like to understand that your um, understanding or using it as a tool for learning on the issue of when we talk about capitalism being in crisis and why that creates or, or limits its ability to deal with any kind of social or racial injustices. I would add that since World War II, which, uh, which is the war that pulled the U.S. out of the Depression, because all the New Deal programs that, that were passed under the Roosevelt administration, they helped, but unemployment was still a major problem, and so, was, so were the profits of the, uh, of the capitalists. And uh, and uh, the U uh, with World War II, the U.S. government infused a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of money into uh, making uh, weapons of war, 
war machi- more war machinery and and uh and and it continued that through the through through the cold war which it engineered uh because uh the soviet union was was not a military threat to the us at the end of world war 2 and there were several uh you know uh military advisors that indicated such but using uh the uh the the uh the, the media as his propaganda device it engineered the cold war and also uh and also control of uh africa and asia's natural resources was critical to the survival of capitalism so those two additional factors into the ones that were mentioned earlier contributed to the crisis in capitalism that is as presently You know, panelists, before we make this uh, transition to our theme tonight, part two, planning and controlling by force, uh, earlier when we were talking about this whole question about um, the history and rural education and influence impact on our people past and present, there are two fundamental questions that this country has always um, been uh, confronted with. And it has been answered by those in power, but it hasn't been answered by those who are oppressed. And those two questions are, as relates to education, is that there are two fundamental questions that we must answer and find ways to to overcome um, these realities. And these two questions are, it has always been a question of, when we talk about oppressed people in this country, particularly African people, the question around who can be educated, and the second question is real closely related to that one, not only who can be educated, but who shall be educated. How do we address those two questions so that we can change that narrative and power ourselves where we are controllers over who will be educated and who can be educated, panelists? Because there's a presumption, again, when it comes to African people, we shall not be educated, and we can't be educated. And it comes out in different forms. So I'd like to have your response to how do we overcome and, and, and eradicate um, those ideals and philosophies um, out of this, 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 this reality that we live in right now. We're around the issue of how people view education as it relates to us. Brother Africa. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Brother Africa. No, I was going to, I was going to say uh, that mass education of our people is the solution. We have to educate as many of our people as possible because it is the masses that are the makers of history, and 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 it's through their their labor and struggle that we'll gain our freedom. And so we, uh, so so as revolutionaries, we have to seek the education of the masses of our people. And uh, now, on the other hand, uh, let's see, um, capitalists will only uh, only educate a few, the few that can be used to perpetuate the ideas of capitalism. But we have to have mass political education, and it has to be controlled by us. 
And if you look at the at the solutions that other people have been confronted with, that is that is one of the tools they use to solve their problem. And that was stamping out illiteracy and trying to educate as many of their people as possible. Yeah, you know, when you ask the question who can be educated is a is a very poignant question, particularly when you talk about the, the ruling class. One of the things historically they've done is they say that African people were simply not capable of being educated. And the reason they say that is to justify the exploitation, you know, under the rules of rules of capitalism. Now, one of the things we talk about, you know, who you know, who can be educated. Now for as far as the ruling class is concerned, you know, that's a very, very important point because when you start talking about generally really educating people, then essentially what you're talking about, you're creating adversaries for the system. And so therefore you gotta be very circumspect as far as the system is concerned in terms of who actually who who it is that can be educated. Uh one of the things when you talk about the masses of, of African and of poor people, then when you talk about this whole educational process, essentially what you're talking about, you're talking about indoctrination. You're not talking about education. Because it's never been desired to educate African people, and henceforth, which is why you have no African curricula in terms of the African uh, contributions, not only to the United States, but throughout the world. The reason why that is not talked about, it's not shared, is because they made a conscientious effort um, you know, not to make that their history available. So anybody want to know more about that, read a book by um, um, uh, the um, uh, C.W. Noble called... Um, called um, I said it many, many times. I got the book, the book slipping up, slipping in my mind. Uh, it's called um, uh, Historians Against History. C. W. Nobles. So those who want to know more about that history, in terms of this, this complicity, in terms of hiding African history, can read more about that. So clearly, this question in terms of who can be educated has always been a question in terms, in terms of you know the the elite. Now the question in terms of who shall be educated, uh, Brother Africa, you know, uh, it's that's no question. That when we talk about the disparity in terms of education or access to real education, there's a real disparity between Ivy League universities and all others. And the question is, why is that? Why is it that Ivy League, educate, Ivy League students get real education where other university students don't get the same quality education? There's a reason why, because education is power. And so, therefore, if you're going to, if you want someone to accrue power, then you want to make sure the right sort of people to accrue that power. And so clearly, you know, uh, those pe- those kids who attend these Ivy League schools, by and large, come from, you know, from the capitalist class. And so, therefore, you want to perpetuate that capitalist mindset. You want to cap- perpetuate the capitalist control by elevating those those children of capitalists who attend these so-called Ivy League universities. So clearly, it's all part of a, of a grand strategy. And and but I will and I want to say this, and I, I'll conclude. Then one of the things we talk about in terms of the ability to learn, one of the things, you know, back in the back in the 17th century, and I can't recall this guy's name, but anyway, he was a uh, he was a white capitalist, and he was talking about the fact that these Africans they learn so quickly. I mean, my goodness, he said they learn, he said they're much more intelligent than than, than these average white people, white folks, and so therefore, if they ever come to the realization how intelligent they are, we'd be in trouble. So I got a sneaking suspicion that when you when you when you talk to a lot of these racist white folks. They have a, a very clear understanding in terms of the intelligence of the African people. Because keep in mind, one of the things they do in terms of you sort of uh, undermining the African children's ability to learn is create these horrendous conditions in which the kids don't have access to good food. Uh, certainly that does, does a, 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 a horrible job in terms of the kids' ability in terms of just to even concentrate. When you got children on sugar diets in terms of just to survive, then realistically speaking, it's very, very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's damn extremely difficult 
for a kid to focus, you know, under those circumstances. And so as a consequence, you have kids out of control, kids who are, you know, just, you know, uh, uh, you know, hyper, you know, simply because the diet is not consistent with the terms of educational pursuits. So they understand that. And so, therefore, they can create those, maintain those conditions to make sure these African children don't have access to what they need. Then you affect them both on, on, on a nutritional level and an emotional level. And so, therefore, that's what they want because they do have an understanding in terms of African history. The capitalists do understand African history. They do know the brilliance of Af- genius of African people. This is, why, this is why they work so hard in terms of exploitation of African people because they understand once we come to the realization of who we are and our contributions and our, and our, and, and our, and our, and our contributions uh, to humanity generally, once we come to that realization, then they understand that we're unstoppable. And so they're going to do everything they can uh, be be it, be it in the political, social, economic realm to, to make it possible, impossible, almost impossible for us to excel. So it's up to us. We must create the community to protect the children, to make sure that the message, that, that, that the message, you know, up in terms of, you know, how, how the, the, the kind of uh, expectations uh, that the community have in terms of the children. I'm mindful of the uh, NSLA community in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, this was a self-contained community, just of Muslims. And uh, these brothers and sisters, they had their own stores, you know, barbershops, everything. It was self-contained. The kids were some of the brightest, some of the most brightest, some of the most alert children that you ever want to see. So disciplined. It was scary. Make no mistake about it. The, uh, the intelligence community were quite aware of NSALA community. The mere fact that you're producing, you're mass-producing those kind of children. Those children were always at the top of their grades. Those children were so intelligent, so, I mean, so analytical. I mean, but they, they come out of conditions which say that we have these high expectations for you, and we're going to constantly reinforce, you know, these expectations we have for you, and the kids get it. So we as a community have to do the same thing. Forget about the racism. Forget about the blocked opportunities. Forget about all of that stuff that they do in terms of trying to keep us in a situation of, in a, in a, in a, in a condition of subservience. We have to be intelligent. We have to start thinking about what we do, work with one another, even if we don't like one another, work with one another in terms of making it possible to create the conditions for the favor for our children to grow up to be the best he or she can be. So I think the question in terms of education is a very good one, Brother Africa, and I, I, I think that, uh, but it's coming upon us, as a Brother Maurice alluded to, that we be in the forefront in terms of making sure that becomes a reality. Brother Maurice Moses, your response to the issue of how do we overcome or deal with this question or this, these two fundamental questions that America has been confronted with since its inception, or who can and who shall be educated? Your thoughts on that, Brother Maurice? Um, just to echo what Brother Haki said, he, great, great analysis, great point. We, it's going to take us. It's going to take revolutionaries. It's going to take um, Yahoo schools. Like 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 Brother Hackey stated, man, we, we, we know what we're up against. We know the struggles. But as revolution, and I'm not just going to say Africans. I'm going to say revolutionaries in our communities uh, around the world. We need to work with one another, regardless of religion, regardless of um, or, um, uh, regardless of religion or political organization. As long as we have that one, the same common goal of liberating Africans, and 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 under a revolutionary system, uh, just system, socialism, and the imperialism, and the capitalism, we have that goal. We need to work with one another in in our communities. Not we can't work by ourselves in our own silos. That's not going to get it. Kwame Ray said it over and over to his, his his last day on earth breathing. Organize, organize, organize. But we need your rural schools. 
We need to pool, 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 pool our resources, our connections in the community for brick and mortar or um, building to have these um, schools. And, and and I got resources, man. Um, I got school supplies. I got African cultural books. I got stuff they could bring to the table. I'm trying, you know, I want to work with us. That's what the organization slang that uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, affiliated with. That's the goal is, is trying to uh, uh, Africanize our, our youth. Let them know their uh, culture and history. Yuhuru schools in our communities, organized by revolutionaries, man. Put pooling our resources together. That's what it's all about. Um, and, and I say this from from a, um, being a member of a political organization. I noticed that the enemies had stepped up. You know, we, we are, like we said, we're aware of that. The enemy has stepped up their um, strategies of keeping us uh, oppressed and keeping our movements um, digress or, or, you know, try to k- kill them off, kill us off. But as political organizations, we, uh, Crime to Race stated United Fronts. We need, we need, we need this unite. We need United Fronts as an organization, but as revolutionaries in the community, we need to work together. And the main issue is is the youth. Um, a couple of kids. I mean, you know, students. Like I try to, I know, I, I try to get my um, nephews and kids or children in my family. I try to bring them to even just culture, man. And I catch hell against my own family. To get uh, my nephews to bring them to me, I got called. I say this, and I conclude, man. My sister-in-law is biracial, my brother's wife, and my nephew. I was in the in the in the, in the um, I was in the situation of taking him to the Maggie L. Walker Museum. Just to, just to the Maggie L. Walker Museum, African brother. Just to the Maggie L. Walker Museum, and I got and I overheard the conversation because my nephew was the phone rung and he put the phone on speakerphone. It was my sister-in-law. She said, and this is what she said. He, your brother ain't taking uh, our, our, our son to, to that black power stuff, is he? And, and the man, Maggie L. Walker is a symbol of black power, but she acted like I was taking him to, and he, my nephew at the time, he was like eight years old. She acted like I was taking him to a, a, a black panther rally. I was going to get him murdered like, you know, Bobby Hutton. You understand what I'm saying? So I can't even, I struggle with trying to get my own youth and my own family organized and politicized, but if other revolutionary African revolutionaries in the community have a group of students or have children in their family who have the appetite um, and have the, the courage to get to to revolutionize themselves and or, or educate themselves about our history and culture, that's what I want to work with, man. So that, that's 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 how I end it, man. You you who rules schools? Roswell, this show is for us. Yeah, historically, you know, black people are. Uh, are the last to be educated. As a matter of fact, they didn't want us to be able to read. That was if that was a law, it's teaching slaves to read, etc. So his, these historical roots have continued in one shape, form, or another. As the oppressor is near yet to be completely uh, overthrown and depowered, uh, this white power structure that we are faced with, and so. You know, I agree with Brother Anthony. We need mass education. We need we need uh, to to politicize the the situations that we face. And uh, I think you know, I I I, I understand what the brother saying. Uh, I have a nephew. A nephew. He's he's got uh, a a white.
white girlfriend, and she's got a baby, a 16-year-old baby at this point. And uh, but he, I had to educate him the other day. We were having a discussion, and he he was saying basically because because he was sleeping with this white girl, uh, she couldn't be racist. And I had to break, had to educate him about Thomas Jefferson and, and Sally Hinton and the whole nine yards. I mean, this racism is, is bigger than than just some kind of personal uh, uh, um, I don't know, behavior uh, uh, towards one person or something. Uh, uh, I understand what he, what his sentiment is, but. You know, we got to be scientific about this this racism thing, and so I, anyway, uh, we 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 have to educate ourselves. Thank you. But you know, brother Africa, uh, you know what's what's interesting though, um, in terms of giving some idea in terms of the intelligence. Uh, yearly, they have a situation where they have Harvard um, law school students going to the prison to debate the inmates. The inmates tear them up. These are inmates, and these are supposed to be the lowest of the low. Right, these guys are not uh, Harvard educated, you know, Ivy League educated. You know, most of them, you know, dropped out in you know junior high, high school. But in terms of intellectual debate, they make the Harvard students, law students, look bad. So that says a lot in terms of the innate uh, ability in terms of African people, you know, to rise above the situation. But you know, but nonetheless, you know, we 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 definitely need you know institutions to sort of reinforce certain things with our children. So as to overcome a lot of the obstacles that are put in our way by the system to make sure that our children don't reach their their their, their fullest potential. Hmm. You know, panelists. Um, before we make our transition to the thing, part two, planning and controlling by force. Uh, if we get to it, now one other issue I just like to get your response to, just for the whole purpose of of trying to recognize and be conscious of different kind of tools and policies that are being uh, developed, evolved today that may apply to this whole concept of those two questions that I raised earlier earlier, uh, with this panel, and that is who can and shall be educated. Today, there seems to be an ongoing philosophy of criminalizing children's behavior. Let me repeat that, criminalizing children's behavior, childlike behavior. I'm saying that because I have been privileged to be in certain educational institutions, public schools, where I have seen and I know of cases where second, first graders, second graders, third graders are now being handcuffed and going to jail all behind their attitude or acting out as a, as a as a child. For example, touching the teacher or hollering and not listening to the teacher or refuse to um, do things that children would do at that young age who need some kind of guidance and discipline. But instead of trying to talk to them and correct them, they are using this man to kick them out of the classroom and incarcerate them. Have police there to physically lock them first, second, third graders. What do we say to the substance of that kind of way of dealing with our youth today and the things that are going on with our institutions that relates to our young people? 
this is happening on a daily basis. You know, we know when we were growing up, now, many times we didn't listen to our teachers. There were times when some of us may attach or push our teachers. There are times where we were disrupted in the classroom. But it wasn't you as a criminal behavior? It wasn't, but, uh, Brother Africa, I th- what is happening, and what's been happening over the last few decades, is that increasingly uh, our youth, are being taught by being being taught by people that are not that are alienated from our community. They don't. They do not have any. They uh, <clears throat> unfortunately uh, one of the one of the cruelties of the system is that a lot of people take jobs to get paid. They and uh, and and in that situation. You have people that are doing jobs that could care less about the quality of their work. They just want to get paid at the end of the day. And they don't care anything about the children that they have to work with on a day-in and day-out basis. Not saying that's all of them, but it's a, uh, it's a lot since the, uh, the era of desegregation. And uh, in a lot of cases, our youth are, are placed in settings where they're alienated from their teacher. The teacher has no relationship to that community at all, has no understanding of African culture, and uh, does not know how to reach out to uh, you know to uh, you know to children. And and our children suffer as a result of this. So they're either uh, you know uh, you, you know. Either subject to uh, uh, you know uh, heavy-handed policing, like being handcuffed, or being medicated to death, you know, uh, you, you know, with all, all, all these drugs to get them to behave. Now, uh, in, in uh, now, this is happening at the same time that you know the children are being fed these diets that are high in sugar, and yet they're cutting back physical education programs. So that the, so that the children have no place to dissipate that energy. You know what, I, I, brother, brother Anthony? You know, I, I I agree. But you know what? I, my position is that it's a bit more insidious than that. It goes right to the system. Uh, one of the things in terms of the orange menace, in terms of in his, educa- his education secretary, secretary of education, uh, Betsy DeVos. They've been very adamant that we have much more stringent uh, disciplinary guidelines when it comes to you know interaction with children. That was a cold word. That was cold to speak. Uh, they they know precisely what they were saying. That was all about you know use in and every justification in terms of um, expelling you know African and, and, and Hispanic children for age appropriate behaviors. Uh, so clearly you know this antagonism toward African people you know is something that I think as a community we have to come to grips with. And, and and the thing is that. You know, when when they do this kind of thing to to African children, why why no response from the from the community? That that, that troubles me. That should be a response. Uh, but the the a lot of times community is totally oblivious in terms of the implications of these kind of these kind of moves. Now I'm thinking about a situation where they expel young African females simply for wearing braids on their hair, and that's quite interesting. Or expelling a, a little a little four year old for hugging another little four year old, uh, you know, for 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 touching. Which is very age appropriate for a four year old. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's not criminal. It's what four year olds do. Uh, it, I mean, at least they didn't punch nobody. The child hugged. The child didn't punch her. Child hugged. 
So you think that would be a good thing, but apparently not. Uh, when you think in terms of, like you say about the Africa, when when a, when a, when the youth talks back to teach, okay, 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 all right, that's that's grounds for you to be locked up. You know, could you talk back? Well, the bottom line is that when you talk about the social economic conditions a lot of these children come from, to think that somehow these children are not going to act out, that's totally ludicrous. That's totally ludicrous. You can't come from a from a situation which you know you don't even know where you can live from night to night, uh, where you're not eating. Uh, whereas so much going on around you in terms of the impoverishment of the community. And then don't think that's not going to impact on the children. You know damn well it's going to impact on the children. The damn ruling class know damn well it's going to impact on the children. Unfortunately, we don't seem to understand that it's going to impact on the children. I suspect that we understood the impact we have on our children emotionally and psychologically, that maybe we can work together to protect our children and make damn sure you know, they get what they need to make sure you know, we have the proper conditions to make sure that uh, these kind of obstacles, you know, don't 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 definitely don't jeopardize their chance of going on and being the best they can be. But it takes but it takes an understanding terms of precisely what's going on. And so I think that when people talk about this prison to this 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 this, this school to prison pipeline, I think there's some real legitimacy there. I think there's some real legitimacy there. And then because clearly, you know, you would think that as you say, Brother Africa, that you were correct, that behavior that was isn't correct, given the fact that it's I mean, they, if they're doing something that's age appropriate, then you correct it. You don't you don't vilify them. You don't penalize them simply because they're doing some doing that behavior that's age related. You don't you don't you you don't castigate them. You don't put them down for that. You show them another way of doing a particular thing, a particular behavior. So so clearly, you know, this thing starts at the top. So we're talking about a system in place which is committed to the idea in terms of the destruction of black lives. And I know some of some part of the saying, Oh, high key, he's just being paranoid. You know, no, it's not a simple question of paranoia. It's a simple question of two plus two equals four. And so, therefore, if we see this stuff and we understand this stuff goes on, the question is, what is our hesitancy? Why, why, why are we hesitant in terms of standing up and saying, wait a minute, you know, uh, we can't have this. This, this, is, this is simply unacceptable. But until we do, I, I suspect that this kind of behavior, this kind of, um, um, you, know, you know, expelling our children for, all, for any and every, every reason will go on. You know, I just, and, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, uh, I just want to add. Yeah, I just want to uh, add and piggyback off of Brother Anthony and Brother Aki, um, uh what they just stated. Now, Brother Anthony made a, a, a valuable point, great point. I see it every day, work, going to work. I dread going back to work tomorrow, back to the uh, institution and building a school with our students, man. The, the, the teachers I, I work with, uh, majority white women. Um. At a predominantly, overwhelmingly black school. Now we do have a black principal, who leadership sucks. His main, his main uh, goal or his main determination is data, increasing data at the school to move on to a higher position to get more money, grant funding, right? The uh, the, the school board, the, the school superintendent, they want to, they want to, the new school board, school superintendent, they want to increase data in each school. They want to decrease attendance. And want to, um, you know, better the data to get more grant funding, grant money, man. This, these kids uh, worth our money, dollar figures, thirty-five thousand, whatever, you know. And as for, and not to get away from your question of police coming in the school, which police is in school down there every other day, um, dealing with students because the students getting shitted on. Excuse my language, twofold. They getting shitted on in their communities we live in because of of the oppression of the you know of the um. The effects or the production or the results of capitalism, neo-colonialism, 
<laughs> we can't live out. We can't leave leave out neo colonialism. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Some, uh, it's not you know the last stage of imperialism. Neo colonialism. Um, we have a black mayor, right? This black leadership. It, it, you can't leave that out. They are killing our our, our educate our students' future, and they're killing their um, appetite to learn, man. Along with like 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 Brother Anthony said, these students just taking they want money. They just taking whatever job they can get. Some of these teachers don't even last a week because because the situation is so bad. We need teachers who relate to our students. Sit to tell, sit, sit down, boy. You better sit down. We need that, but you can't do that because if you say that, they're so scared now. They got it so rigged now that if you say that to you, you can you can't because they got you got kids, man. That cuss you out. They, you know they'll say f you, middle school, get your hand. You got kids, second graders, man. I think they tell they tell us that every day. They tell me that every day. I put my when the kid get by, I say I put my hand. Not when I say put my hands on them, I'm not beating on the child. And I have witnesses, and and I have staff members tell me every day, "You better be careful." You better. I said, "Look, man, they, if they're gonna get rid of me, they're gonna get rid of me. I'm not gonna have a, a child call a teacher a bitch, a black woman a bitch in front of my face, and I'm a, a, a black man, a dog man standing right there. Who are you talking to, young soldier? What what are you doing? Do you talk to your mom like that? That's what they need. They respond positively to that, not calling the cops on them, not not just letting them walk around the hallways all day, walk around the school. Parents come up to the school and say, I see, y'all can't discipline my child. Why do I bring them here? You understand what I'm saying? But the reason they can't discipline your child, sister, is because the leadership sucks. They put these principals and they handpick them. You know, you know what I'm saying? They put these the principals in leadership and, and position. That's gonna that, that's gonna lead our children to hell and just 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 make it look good uh, number wise. Make the data look good. Do enough to make the data look good to make the principal rating go up so he can go up and get more money and bring in that grant money. That's 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 what I'm. That's that's the frustration that I want to get off. And and you and, and like and and, to, and like uh, brother Haki uh, said, you do that. It, it's all connected. It all falls back to the economical system that we under uh, of capitalism and imperialism. My I end with this. Malcolm X said, "If you show me a capitalist, I show you a blood sucker." And these really capitalists think- are sucking the blood of our children. And uh, you know, and the thing, uh, and the problem is, you have situations. I want to add to this real briefly. That you have some cases, some single parent, uh, single parent households, which the parent might be working two and three jobs in order to raise their children properly. They cannot. It, that is nearly impossible to monitor what's going on in the school. And uh, when when we when, when there was a sense when there was a greater sense of community, the community took an interest. In the education of my youth, it wasn't just a biological parent as it is today. So you have that factor too. You know the fact that parents are working, are either struggling with unemployment or uh, or they're working multiple jobs in order to keep a roof over their head for their families. And it's a very difficult situation, and we have to organize and work together more in order to overcome that. I always maintain when they said, you know, that, um, you know, um, you know, disciplining the child uh, equals uh, child abuse. 
I always thought that was problematic. One of the things is when you got a young child that's out of control and you might have to grab his hand or grab his arm or something to keep him or her from hurting himself or hurting other people, then, you know, it's, it's not with the intent in terms of hurting the child. It's intent actually to, hurt, to help the child. But the mere fact that now they're saying that you can't even touch the child, give that child carte blanche of the right to uh, to essentially uh, do things which, is, which, which are not in his or her best interest. And I have a problem with that. So there's no real, as far as I see, no real therapeutic benefits in terms of allowing children, you know, to essentially uh, do whatever they want, but, you know, given the fact that they're children. That children need guidance. And if you're not free to give off that guidance, then I, I have a problem with that. Now, people say that, well, you, you talk to them. Yes, you always talk to children, always. You always read with them. But a situation where, you know, say one kid is attacking another kid or, or the kid is trying to hurt him or herself, and you and you know and, and you even intervene and, and, and grab the child so the child can't hurt himself, you find yourself in trouble. I suspect that the the the, the motive in in terms of this policy has nothing to do in terms of the best interest of the child, but has more to do with setting the child up for failure. Because essentially, what they're saying is that you're letting the children raise themselves. And so I I, I always had a problem with that one. I said, where the hell did this come from? Where does insane this inane insane policy come from? You know, through the history of you know of of human society Where has ever been you allow children You know to, 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 to engage In destructive kind of behaviors And not intervene I, I, never, I never understood that one It doesn't negate the question in terms of talking to children you, Once your child is calmed down You explain to the child whatever it is That what they're doing was inappropriate How they could hurt themselves and hurt someone else And you know, so forth But some kind of intervention at some point Is, is, is necessary in terms of Making sure that child is safe so the mere fact that you can't do that, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm trying to understand the logic behind this. The only thing I can conclude is that those people who want kids out of control, because children are going to be children, and if you as a parent have no control over your child, then essentially what you're doing is that you're empowering your child to do all the things that children do, which means that ultimately it's going to get him or her in a lot of trouble. So I have a real philosophical problem in terms of that, but that's nonetheless what they're doing in terms of the schools, uh, you know, as well as in, in as well as the homes. So I have a philosophical problem in terms of that kind of thinking, and uh, and it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Bro, Hackey, the only sense it makes to me, based on what you're saying, is that it reflects our theme tonight, planning and controlling by force. It reinforces that whole concept. All this is part of their plan for controlling and doing the force. And I'm saying that because... If you look at their own rules and their own history... They would tell you that they would never give up a strategy or a tactic that has been successful. This is they never give up, even if they tell you they have. If it's been successful, they would they would not give up. They will apply it some other way, maybe a different method, but it's the same thing. Now, I'm saying that, as my argument is, it seems to me that they have made public schools into a prison system, a prison. By allowing students to be so undisciplined to do as they please, to have a risk where you can damage people, to have a risk where authorities have no control over you, um, to intentionally, psychologically, every day, damage our kids by the first thing they see, by the first thing that they see when they come to the school, is is a police car, and having police stations inside the public schools, and all this is, is tolerated. 
If you look at the physical makeup of most schools now today, they have very little windows, and those who have windows, they are taking these windows out. You look at the color schemes of these schools, whether you colors that should be more, 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 more try to uh, encourage you to be more, more, more thankful. The colors more dim, and the colors are more dim and dull. Look like a prison. They have converted these schools into prisons. They function like prisons. Many times, even if they have a cafeteria, they have students there sitting in the classroom. They have to eat in the classroom. They have guards come by and tap on the door. So what they have done is create a psychological environment where our youth today will not know a difference between a so-called general prison and a damn school. And we're sitting back and participating in this whole process. Brother Africa, that is a very good point. point. Let me finish this point, and then I'd like to respond. Now, the, the enemy will tell you corporate punishment is wrong. You shouldn't allow it to hit and touch your kid. Well, hey, from my experiences and looking at where I came from and how I was raised or we were raised, it was no harm. It didn't kill us for a teacher to give us a paddle or a teacher to tap us or even put that foot up there behind everything I did. We came out to be very responsible, responsible you know, decent human beings. But when we can apply no kind of forms of discipline to our kids, that now has ensured them to have a pep, a continuation of fulfilling the pipeline from the schools to the prisons. This is what they have planned. This is what, this is how they're doing it. This is how they're controlling us, and this is the kind of force they are using. But go ahead, panelists. I'd like your response to my statements just there. Yeah, well. This, this, yeah, this, you know, the, yeah, putting police cars in the schools for, cho- I mean, for children, I mean, that's, uh, you're right. It, what, what message are you sending to the children? I mean, seriously, and when we talk about we want kids to have this, this strong self-concept, well, it's very difficult to have a strong self-concept if, in fact, the first thing you see is a police officer. And of course, the police are equated, you equate police to what? Criminality. And so, therefore, you got this police dead at a school, a place is supposed to place up you know, uh, of learning, but you got police there. And so what are you saying in terms of what do you think about, you know, the children? So I, I, I don't understand, Brother Africa, you know, why you see that these damn, you know, these teachers uh, don't say, wait a minute, this is, this is totally unacceptable, and start a movement in terms of, this. we got we to gotta undo this. Because whoever thought of this plan of putting police in school with, with our children, uh, needs to rethink that policy. And it's certain policy which is was not only counterproductive, but uh, uh, potentially very harmful to the uh, aspirations or the self-image of our children. And so, therefore, we don't want cops in the damn schools. But you're right. We're so conditioned to go along with it. And maybe possibly a lot of it has to do with the fact that you do have a lot of these young white teachers, you know, who have no understanding in terms of what goes on in the real world, unfortunately. You have some. But most have no real understanding in terms of what goes on in the real world. They have this idealized view in terms of the world based upon their upbringing. And that understanding, that's another world out there that exists. But nonetheless, you know, it seems to me in the forefront, at least, you know, uh, you know, aside from the parents, teachers should be the ones to speak up and say, listen, this is totally, un- as an educator, this is totally unacceptable. But the mere fact that they go along with it suggests that maybe they, that the, 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 the focus on that check is their primary motivation. 
And with that, Brother Hackey, then after you can get it, I maintain that what they have done very sophisticatedly is to transfer and transform a teacher from being a teacher from being a teacher to become a prison guard. Teachers are not the number one prison guards in these schools because they already are saying that no education is taking place in these schools. So if education is not taking place in the school, then what is the role of the teachers? They become prison guards. But go ahead, Brother Anthony. I agree with you, Brother Africa, and I would add also is that if if the teachers are not speaking out in defense, in the interest of the uh, of the children, where are the parents? And 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 I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves: what what is the what is what what is our role as parents in this situation? I mean, uh, I mean, we have to. If no one else does, our parents have to stick up for our youth and what, and, and make sure their interests are, uh, you know, are protected, because the youth are our future. That may sound trite, but it is true. And so, you know, so what goes on now, uh, you know, uh, you know, has a devastating effect on our future in terms of their attitudes, in terms of uh, them being able to grow up to their fullest human potential. And uh, and those parents that that have the time and resources, they should be raising, uh, you know, a a a a, 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 a cry against what's going on in the school system. I mean, uh, I, 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 I mean, if it, it, and the thing about that, we have to educate ourselves because if our parents understood uh, what was going on, I don't think they would tolerate it. And I, I want to add, add, add one more thing. I know I know. Uh, so I got to go on. Just real brief. Um, another thing that I witness in these schools are Afrocentric teachers being scrutinized, uh, scrutinized against. Um, real brief. We had one teacher. She came in there with a black girl rock T-shirt. The principal told her, "Don't you, you can't wear this. What about how, how would that make the white te- white teachers feel?" How would you feel if a white teacher coming in with a white girl's rock T-shirt? I said, I spoke up in her defense. I said, they don't have to do that because they, they are glorified. White people, white people are glorified every day. Um, we live under a Eurocentric system. What's, you know, what's wrong with wearing a black girl's rock T-shirt to a, full, a classroom full of black boys and black girls? You know, and and, and this same TCC she would been came in with a mel, uh, mel, uh, proud of being melanated uh, sweater, and still was scrutinized against. So, and this is by a black principal. So, you got that going on. I just want to add that you got this type of stuff going on in the school as well. And we talking about, uh, you know, liberating our children and the teachers coming in, black teachers coming in with this stuff with with, with these statements on their shirt to try to uplift our children. And they get and they get um they get degraded by by black leadership in the school, the principal in the school. So I mean, damn if you do, damn if if, if you don't. Situation, man. And I had this. As for the parents, um, parents that I come across doing home visits and stuff like that, the parents, man, they are heavily heavily uh, traumatized and damaged by the generational uh, pass down of 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 
of oppression, poverty, and all the other things that that sport us as a people, man. They, you know, and some of these parents, man, they don't even the the first thing they don't know how to they don't even know how to articulate their um, emotion or defending their student. If they do defend them, it always come in there, you know, as, as um, fight, you know, want to fight, threaten, making threats, uh, get trying to get it, it, it leads to basically a police being called to the school and escorting the parents out of the school or making threats to the parents that we're going to take you in if this behavior continues, that type of, type of situation, instead of organizing with other parents and sitting down. And that's why I tell parents, man, if you bring up, bring in up, work with other parents who you have the same situ- uh, issue with and work together to come to the school, come to the school board meetings and handle it, handle it that way. Not only school, you know, uh, just to speak, you got to be more organized um, as, as a parent body to speak out if if you don't if you don't like a teacher if you don't like principal or you don't like such and such or you don't like this organize with other parents who have the same emotion um towards that issue and handle it that way instead of coming in there I'm gonna f you up my child da 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 I ain't do that you know it's not gonna get you nowhere so I I conclude with that all right panelists we are talking um about this whole question, dealing with this concept of planning and controlling by force. For the last 30, 45 minutes, this is really another example of our theme tonight, which is part two of a three-part series of planning and controlling by force. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we will get our final thoughts for the night from our political panelists and analysts. You are listening to Africa on the Move.
welcome you back to Africa on the Move, and we will wish everybody a happy New Year's, and we would like to remind you, yes, don't become a Buffalo soldier, and yes, we were stolen from Africa and brought to America, so we're not going to let you forget it. We are speaking tonight, dealing with part two of a three-part series titled Planning and Controlling by Force. We're going to do right now with our political panelists and analysts for tonight. We're going to ask each one of them just give us a final summation on some of the thoughts that they share tonight. And we will start it all first and foremost with our brother Moses. Brother Moses, you know, say summation of some of your final thoughts as relates to, you know, some of the things that may have been said tonight to our listening audience. I thought it was very insightful. Um, um, certainly, we, we need to get involved in the educational system. Uh, the community has to be, has to have to take control of the schools and uh, and really be proactive in terms of education and and see that we get some some uh, black history, et cetera, in the schools and and it's continuously updated. Um, Ultimately, the schools can't, won't, won't teach us about the system and, and what needs to be done in order to get out from under our pressure. And so, in this situation, we need to be had to have political education of ourselves, and uh, there's no substitute for that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And then we go to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, your final thoughts that were raised and shared with our listening audience tonight. Um, I would share right now that it, you know, like I said, it's a new year, and new year, same struggle. So therefore, if you're you if you're still conducted the same strategy of reforms, reform the reform um. Uh, tactic or you know trying to reform or try to basically trying to make capitalism comfortable for yourself that is not the answer basically trying to make this system of imperialism capitalism neocolonialism comfortable for yourself get, oh, let's get a statue with a black man on a horse and that'll, that'll clear up uh, the, the history and the trauma of of the confederates of KKK or what have you it's not. That's not the answer. It's a nice uh, symbol. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Nice, nice symbol. Nice day to go look at it on a sunny day and take pictures back. That's all you're gonna get out of it. It's not gonna solve the, the issue. It's not. It's not gonna solve um, the, the 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 material situation we're dealing with. The ideal idealist approach. It's not gonna work. We need a materialist approach. We need. A, we need. We need results. We need stuff that we can see, smell, feel. Touch. That's what we need. We need a more political. Like we've been, the, the conversation of tonight was just you, 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 we put it out there. Solutions. Not only tonight, this, this since the show been in existence. You understand what I'm saying? Africa on the move is the title, and it's time for Africans to get on the move. We've been, we've been, we got the energy. I'm not saying we haven't been doing anything as a people, but we need to, we need to go up to a higher level of development among strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Maurice, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will go to Brother Hackey. 
Brother I gave you summations and thoughts on some of the issues that were raised and discussed tonight. Yeah, well, I, I think that the situation that we're confronted with is will continue to deteriorate. Uh, you know, this this recent killing of uh, the Iranian uh, military official over there in Iraq speaks volumes in terms of the propensity to use violence to solve problems. One thing we be very very clear on, you know, you know, as an oppressed nationality here in North America, the mere fact that the economy is in decline means that uh, we are especially perceived as the enemy. And as being perceived as the enemy, then we have to understand that, in fact, there is a war being conducted against us. Whether or not we understand that or not is, in germane, is, 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 is not germane. What is germane is that uh, we, we, we strategize and we actually do the kind of things that tend to empower those things that make it possible to survive under very difficult circumstances. So I think, again, I stress the importance in terms of institutions and encourage people to please build institutions because the bottom line is that without those institutions, clarity uh, that we need so desperately simply would be lacking. So having said that, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, and uh, you all have a good night. I just thank you as well, Brother Hockey, for your contributions to today's program. Next week, we'll do Brother Anthony. Your final summation thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. Yes. Um, I would say in this new year, more than ever, we need to get organized. Uh, our enemy is relentless, and they'll use any and all methods to uh, control and oppress Africa and African people. So as a people, we must be organized. Join an organization that is working for our people's liberation, such as the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, which you can contact by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call us at 202-246-4896. And we'd like to thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your contributions to today's program and to your friends, supporters, and your listening audience. We'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly program that you can listen to and participate with every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We come to speak truth to power, and we hope to provide you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation, to help liberate your people and help liberate humanity from its various forms of oppression. This is a two-part or three-part series titled Planning and Controlling by Force. Next, we will make sure that there are some very, very important articles we would like to discuss with you, and one of them will be U.S. military bases in Africa. So make sure you join us next week. And if you have any views, any questions, or would like to be a host or a guest on the show, please either email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. Until then... We encourage you to always strive to go forward, ever, backwards, never. For the next 10 to 15 minutes, we're going to bring you some music of sweet liberation. Again, this is Brother Africa, the voice of Africa on the move, and we look forward to another insightful show next Sunday at 7 p.m. Please spread the word. So we're going to lead you with Obama Nation to Mama Africa and to Palestine.
wrapped up. Some That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and love. An important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America can stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck who's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, Fuck it, I'll do it. A master of the sky, expert at telling lies. Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Should have known he was trained in Chicago. Worker chairman, Fred and Mark Clark. What they do in the dark will come out in the light. Like a WikiLeaks site. So I guess the crew was right. Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism. I ain't kidding. In the immortal words of Marvin Gates, this ain't living. President just bombed an African country like... 
Obama, Obama didn't say shoot. The Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming. You think I'm joking?
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs there seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine. Palestine. We like to Africa. On the move. This is our first live broadcasting show. It's going to be a show that's going to be. Yeah. 
but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the early, late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement and of course the United States of America itself beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts, at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, 
the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. Of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses in drawing lessons from the 60s must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle, we say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, mobilist, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be the same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. This aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. 
in order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values, connected with the masses, always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. 
The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. 
Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything, anybody. we just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. 
I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. 
Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. I have to conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. 
In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.